0: It says, open while recording. Your crossfade assignment from Matt Helgeson.
1: All right, just got the email from Jason. Let's see what Mr. Remo has in store for me.
0: I'm opening it up. It is Blue Oyster Cult, Secret Treaties from 1974. Paul Simon, Graceland. I know I know very well. I actually don't know this album. I know Don't Fear the Reaper, which everybody knows. I don't know any of their full albums. It's always so difficult to imagine when you just know one song, and that one song is so incredibly iconic. I think Blue Oyster Cult was founded by essentially music critics, or people who were uh, interested in music from a, from a very academic standpoint, and then they, they made this band and actually became successful. Um, so I'm interested to hear what a full album by them is, and I don't know what that's going to be. I'm intrigued.
1: Welcome to Crossfade, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined by my co-host and producer, Jason Daphnis. Hey, Jason.
2: Oh, Jason Daphnis, it's so formal. You can call me Al.
1: Oh, we will. And another person we'll call Al is uh, a a very special guest. We're super excited to have him. Uh, I guess, Chris, you've kind of done it all in the video game industry. You've done design, writing, journalism, podcasting, uh, and, and more recently, composers, uh, a composer uh, we're happy to welcome chris remo to the show
0: hey how's it going thanks for having me on
1: yeah absolutely appreciate you taking the time to to be with us um so yeah i, I guess i wanted to uh you know before we get into your album pick just uh, talk to you a little bit um you know about your your career and and you know how it, it sort of uh, intersected with music and games um you know obviously you've done a lot you know you were at, at you know shack news and got sutra the Idle Thumbs uh, podcast, as a lot of people know. But, um, you know, in, in more recent years, you've gotten into, uh, I guess, being a composer and, and writer for games uh, and some of this stuff. I was actually listening to uh, Gone Home and Firewatch uh, this week to kind of prep for the show. Oh, and nice. those are really, uh, really, uh, those are good. Those are good work albums, actually.
0: Dude, I've heard that. Like, I've heard that before. Yeah. There's sort of a, yeah. um, there's also a meditative thing going on with both of those games. And I think that that found its way into the music.
1: How did you, was was music always something that you were kind of writing on your own as a hobby or sort of a, a side thing while you were doing other things in the game industry? Or was it something you sort of evolved into? I, I'm always curious how that transition
0: happened. Um, it's sort of a bit of both, to be honest. I was a, I was actually a, a music major in college. That was my, uh, that was my degree. And the, re- the only reason that was my degree is because when I was in high school, I played in bands and I didn't. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I mean, to be totally honest, I I would almost say the same continues to be true now. But I certainly really didn't know at the time, and I couldn't think of what I, I wanted to study. And and I figured, well, I like music. I like being in bands. Maybe my job, I'll just keep. I'll just be in a rock band. So maybe I should study music <laughs> at university. So I did. Um And. And then I didn't actually do, so So when I was in school, I was writing albums that no one's ever heard or going to hear, and um, I was spending a lot of my time surrounded by music, and then actually before I graduated, I completely, through complete circumstances, this was not an ambition, it wasn't something I'd ever thought about, but I ended up becoming a, a professional video game journalist, and I did that for Uh, a few years, and and then ended up um, moving into game development first at Irrational Games on Bioshock Infinite, and I had actually contributed to one game soundtrack while I was still a game journalist, which was a, uh, a, I think, a probably not very widely played game um, called uh, Drawn to Life the Final Chapter on Wii by Planet Moon Studios. Um, I contributed to that soundtrack through a sort of odd connection. Um, but, but, but that was really the only, um, music connection I had to games for, for a while. Uh, and then, uh, I worked at Irrational on Bioshock Infinite as an associate producer in, in some various capacities. And then, um, I and my friend Steve Gaynor left Irrational within about a year of each other. And I went back to San Francisco, which is where I'd been beforehand, and he went to Portland, Oregon, where his wife uh, was from, and he started Fulbright and made Gone Home. And he knew I was a musician and um, I suppose was familiar with my music to some degree through the Idle Thumbs podcast uh, and asked if I wanted to, to do the soundtrack for his game Gone Home. And I said, sure, that'd be great. So that was sort of my first proper video game soundtrack. Um but I hadn't really been making a lot of music in the in the immediate years preceding. Um I I had sort of gotten I'd gone in other directions, I guess. So that that's where that element of my career started and then um in I I started working at Double Fine Productions and there I co-wrote The Cave with uh, Ron Gilbert and I started kind of Understanding more about the craft of game design and started learning some programming and did another soundtrack there as well. I did the soundtrack for Space Base DF9, um, also contributed to, to game design on that. Um, so Double Fine was sort of where I started doing a lot of different things. It was a great environment for it because Double Fine was making a lot of different games at the time with fairly small teams. Um and so I I was doing some writing, some game design, some music, all all different sorts of things, and then that led into, um, Campo Santo, where I did all of those things sort of at the same time on Firewatch, um, and that that was sort of where it all it all coalesced for me, and then yeah, s- and like sprinkled throughout that there, I I did a bunch of writing for other games and and music and, and various things.
3: Hmm.
1: Um, do you kind of see see yourself probably as sort of continuing to have a sort of a, I guess a hybrid role or, or sort of multiple hats in, in smaller games, or do you sort of have ambitions to kind of grow uh, like the musical composition side into your
0: main thing? Um, I don't have any ambitions for music composition to be my main thing. I do like I do like being multidisciplinary. I, it really fits into my overall, I guess, sort of philosophy. Might be too too grand a way to put it but my my overall thinking about design which is that it's incredibly holistic and that all the different component disciplines really are branches of the design that's creating the overall experience that that someone's having on the other end um Hmm. so i don't i I also don't really know that i'm um an amazing enough composer for that to be my my full-time job i I see i do see myself as sort of a jack-of-all-trades um, and I, and I do enjoy it. What, uh, what would you say is the split
2: if we can put a number, um, between the music you do and sort of the, everything else?
0: Uh, that's a good question. It's hard to say and, and really changes year by year. So, um, mm. I started, uh, working at valve a couple of years ago and haven't, I, I did, I did not have not done any music in connection with valve. um, mm. Whereas when I was at, uh, Campo Santo working on Firewatch, I, obviously I did that, that whole soundtrack, but, but even in that, right. even in that role, I would say music probably consumed maybe 10 to 15% of the total time I spent on that project because I was also wow. working on story and game design. I mean, game, I would call game design my sort of primary task on that project, but I also did the sound design. So I also did the, um, the audioscape for the game and implemented that as well, so um, I was doing a bunch of different things, and the music would there would be times there would be you know maybe a week, two weeks where I would work on the music almost full time um but but I would say overall, if you spread it out, it was probably ten to fifteen percent of my time yeah that's crazy
2: i I love the firewatch score and I gotta say it feels like you put one hundred percent of your ass into that. It is it's it's wonderful. <laughs> thank and thank you so much. Too. Thank you so much. I don't know if Matt's got more questions, but uh nearly I think it's time to talk about other music. Yeah. I guess we will
1: yeah, and this this uh when I got out I, w- I was really um happy that this was your choice. It's not an album I thought about or listened to for a while, but it, it's really tied up uh with me for like a lot of nostalgia uh for for kind of childhood and um we're talking about uh, Paul Simon's kind of landmark 1986 album, Graceland, which was a bit a, of a comeback for him, you know, kind of coming off his early solo career. Uh, I think he kind of went into a little dip for a while and then came back uh, sort of inspired by a lot of music uh, that he had experienced when he was traveling in South Africa, as well as, uh, you know, some other American forms like, you know, rockabilly, Zydeco music from Louisiana and some others. Um, Chris, why did you choose Graceland and, and I guess, uh, well, let's first, let's hear a little bit of it, Jason, and then we'll, we'll ask Chris, like,
4: why he chose it.
2: Yeah, if you don't know this album yet, you will in five seconds.
4: Dear, get these mutts away from me, you know. I don't find this stuff amusing anymore. If you be my bodyguard, I can be your long-lost pal. I can call you Betty, Betty, when you call me.
1: This is uh, You Can Call Me Al. This is a big hit on the album, partially propelled by a pretty funny video where Chevy Chase actually uh, lip syncs the words and Paul Simon's kind of like his little diminutive backing musician.
0: <laughs> I haven't seen that.
1: Oh, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I watched it. I was looking it up on YouTube and yeah, he, they get, basically they got, they sit in this white room and Chevy Chase actually lip syncs everything in kind of a goofy manner and then Paul Simon, like will pull out various instruments like the bass for the bass break or bongo drums or like, you know, uh, I don't know, saxophone or something. And it's also a visual gag because I don't know how tall Chevy Chase is, but he's pretty tall and Paul Simon's very tiny. Yeah. I would
0: imagine. yeah so
1: There's like a four foot maybe height difference between the <laughs> two and they're kind of wearing the same sort of like, you know, eighties Miami vice kind of outfits mm-hmm. or whatever. So it's pretty good. It's, it was a fun watch. Um, Yeah, so talk a little about Graceland. This is obviously, I think, kind of considered a classic uh, now and and very influential, I think, in sort of helping to mainstream some aspects of African music and world music and uh, kind of, you know, blending that with American pop music. Uh, Why did you choose this and why is this album significant to you?
0: Well, it's it's really interesting that you say this is tied up for you in nostalgia and childhood because I would – in my journey, I guess, to appreciating this album, it was quite the opposite. Um, I didn't really know this album at all until I would say my early thirties. And I, I, I don't even think I'd heard You Can Call Me Al, which I know is what was the big hit from the album, but I don't think I was even familiar with that song. I had heard really? the song Graceland. And my main memory of that song from when I, from when I was young was that I didn't like it. It sort of sounded like country music to me, which was, which I found sort of deeply unappealing. Um, and, <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I really came to this album, um, I much later than it deserves. Uh, I didn't, uh, and it's odd too, because I loved, I mean I continued to love but I, I really loved Simon and Garfunkel um growing up. Um I I absolutely loved their music. I wasn't like a massive obsessive Simon and Garfunkel fan or anything, but I but I really liked everything of theirs that I knew and I just the, the there was something about the sort of Americana elements of Graceland the title track that I just found off-putting for some reason and it wasn't until uh, it was um, Kirk Hamilton, who, I don't know if you've had him on mm-hmm. your show. I um, have. He was uh, great. Yeah, he's fantastic. He's a he's a good friend of mine. And he, we were getting drinks or something, we were at a bar, this was years ago, and he brought up this album and I said, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't really know if that's, uh, I don't really know it was Graceland and it never, never really appealed to me. And he was like, oh, come on, man, <laughs> You gotta, you gotta listen to this album, are you kidding? And... I, uh, I went home and I picked up the album and I listened to it and it completely, it completely blew me away. Um, and I think one of the things you ask what it means to me or why would I have chosen it? And I think, now I wouldn't call myself old, I'm in my mid thirties, but uh, I'm at the age, I suppose, now where I have enough adult life Behind me that, I, that, I, uh, and I'm sure people older than I am rolling their eyes when I'm saying this, but at least it feels to me as though I have enough of my life lived in retrospect that there's a, a lot there to chew on. I mean, too, too much to chew on for my taste a lot of the time. And this album feels to me like something that could only have been produced by somebody who had already Sort of gone, gone through a life. And as you, as you said earlier, um, this album came after Paul Simon's solo career had taken a slump and his solo career was already his second career. I mean, he'd already had a massive career and then another career that had sort of slumped. I think he was in his mid forties when he did this. So, you know, he was a good decade or so older than I am now, I suppose, when I'm listening to it. And, uh, but there's something about that that really comes through to me. It's sort of an interesting contrast uh, to the album you chose. Um, which I don't. Should, do we say it? Am I? Is it a secret? Am I allowed to? Acknowledge yeah. No. What it's, is? it's on the. It's yeah. on the. <laughs> <description>. <laughs> okay. Of course. Of course. Of course it is. Podcasts. <laughs> I know how they work. Allegedly. Um, <laughs> You've done well with them. Yeah. So, um, they, because I think both of these albums, to some extent, could be sort of described as, as like dad rock if you know what i mean oh, yeah. uh sure. there's something sort oh, of there's something sort of dad <laughs> there you go so there's something sort of uncool about both of these albums but but and, and i would love to be corrected if you think i'm wrong about this I, I feel as though blue oyster cult that was a band where in their prime they wouldn't have been seen that way at all at the time it would have been no uh have that was like heavy uh yeah, cutting I mean, it edge was like stuff it's
1: like smoking pot and exactly exactly arenas right you know doing quaaludes and stuff like that you know
0: exactly whereas it's hard for me to imagine graceland not immediately being it's sort of right from the beginning this this is an album made by someone well into adulthood um which i don't say with any sort of negative or positive uh, judgment assigned to either album in that respect um, yeah, it's 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 an album that sort of is, is already going to to be that way. Like it's an album that that is so sincere. It wears its heart on its sleeve so much that it's mm-hmm. almost a little bit uncool right from the very beginning. And that's something that I yeah. think in in broader terms, I wouldn't have been able to relate to as a younger person. And I and I deeply relate to now. Um, Why don't
1: we hear a little bit of the uh, the title track Graceland? And totally. Then, um, uh, I'd, I'd like to re, because I have something in my notes that very much ties into what you were just saying. So I, it was kind of a interesting coincidence. Let's play a little Graceland, because this is, you know, like, well, you play it, Jason, and you know, but there's like little details, like you know the the child of my first marriage. It's like, yeah, totally you know, the first marriage, like, absolutely you have a marriage. You know, it's it's very like <laughs> not this something is, like, rock positions. Whatever, out you know, out, discuss, you know yeah. at the time, like you know, uh, <laughs> Motley Crue does not have like kids, exactly. You know, <laughs> yeah. Or if they do, they or if they know.
0: do, they don't talk about it on their songs. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> that's all settled in lawsuits.
2: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, here's Graceland from the top.
1: So much good guitar work on this album in general.
0: For sure.
4: The Mississippi Delta Was shining like a national guitar I am following the river down the highway Through the cradle of the Civil War I'm going the Graceland Graceland, in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. my traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child.
1: Also, how he likes how he's kind of connecting, like you know, American rock and roll and like African music, and oh, that's that whole an incredible tradition.
0: thing. Yeah, absolutely.
4: As if I didn't know that.
2: I see why you would have confused this with a with a country track, Chris. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't sort of twangy. <laughs> yeah, I, it
1: has but... that kind of. It has a Johnny Cash beat, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure, t- t- train totally. Kind of rhythm, very much so. Yeah,
1: but um back to your point is so. Um. Yeah. So I'm in my forties. I'm older than you, and so I kind of remember this, you know, being out, right? And
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I was talking to a friend about this. it was just very. Uh, we were talking about at that time how we perceived it as like music for adults, right? Like there you, you go. Know, we were like little kids, mm-hmm. and and so this was sort of like I, I was thinking about things like Don Henley or like Tina Turner, Private Dance, or mm-hmm. Sting, Dire Straits, yep. and I don't know. They were just like there was actually for how like youth focused the eighties was, there was a lot of older artists that did very well in the eighties actually, and kind of had comebacks and stuff. And so I just, this was sort of in that zone of stuff that I considered like, well, this is like music that like adults, you know, with adult concerns and everything like listen to. And I don't know. And it was also kind of coincidentally, like, I think, you know, my parents uh, were baby boomers and stuff. And I felt like this, you know, for them, some of that stuff I just mentioned was sort of like the last like new music they really got on board with. And after that, they were sort of like, like off the boat. You know what I mean? Totally. Um, and I think partially that's because, you know, there was people like Don Hanley was in the Eagles, which they liked. And, you know, Paul, Simon, everyone's parents had like, you know, concert at Central Park by Simon and Garfunkel, mm-hmm. you know, and Sting was in, you know, the police, which were more of a 70s band and stuff. So it was, but yeah, I, I definitely, I totally resonate with that because I, I definitely thought this was like, well, this is like sophisticated, like, I don't know. People in New York like having dinner parties, you know, in, in, in movies, you know, yeah. in the eighties. Like this is what they listen to, not like whatever, like you know, rap and heavy metal and other stuff that was going around. Um, you had
0: a sli- you had so a slightly yeah. more sort of conscious and intentional um, reaction than I did.
1: <laughs> well, and it wasn't. I mean, I didn't think this out like very eloquently at the time, but it was just certain stuff I associated with, like you know. This is like parents' music kind of. Yeah,
0: totally, totally, absolutely. But, but now, yeah. you
1: know, you know, I, I'm a parent myself, and so I guess I uh, relate to it and everything. But it it is interesting that it was like, you know, because you said, I mean, he's got to be in his like early, mid-30s at this time, and he's having like big hits again and stuff. It was kind of odd in some ways. Um, yeah, I think he
0: was in his four. I think he was actually like maybe 46 or something at the time this came out. I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure he was probably because Simon and Garfunkel came out in the early sixties. So, yeah, but anyway, um, what, a, what, uh, let's, uh, go through, you know, some of your, your favorites of this. What's the next song you'd like to hear?
0: Oh, a uh, good question. Um, well, I, I kind of, I kind of think I wouldn't mind hearing the beginning of the opening track because I feel as though some albums start with sort of an announcement. And this, this album, I think really does personally,
1: very like zydeco new orleans kind of yeah accordion
0: So, what kind of statement do you think it's making as the start of the album? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I sort of I invited that question, didn't I? And then the <laughs> the answer is sort of I don't actually entirely know. I mean, I <laughs> or at least that's that's my memory of how I felt when I actually sat down to listen to this album for real, right? I mean, it's mm. it's a huge, it's an it's a big musical choice to open what is ostensibly a rock and roll record with a big accordion riff essentially i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's sort of strange again it in in a way it's sort of deeply uncool um it's sort of corny uh you mentioned the the zydeco influence and i think i think zydeco is one of the elements of this album that again when i was younger i found sort of challenging and off-putting and and Mm. uh, you know not and i i I don't i say that with, (laughs) with with some degree of shame now because i think it doesn't speak well of me that I, that I wasn't willing to um, push past whatever my sort of limited musical horizons were at the time um, for something that isn't even really all that challenging or or shouldn't need to be. Um, But the opening of this album, it's one it's, it's musically sort of surprising, I think for the opening of a, of a rock album. And then he pairs it with these lyrics that they're, they're sort of, almost verging on the apocalyptic. I mean, he's saying these are the days of miracles and wonder. And he, he, he kicks off with a reference to, I tried to find, he references a bomb in a baby carriage and I looked it up and I, and I think this is a 1985 incident in West Germany, but could also be a reference to a similar 1972 incident um, in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, in which in both cases, a bomb was exploded in a baby carriage. And he's sort of, he's, and then he follows up this, this, this event of sort of trauma with these are the days of miracle and wonder. I mean, he's almost in awe yeah. of what the world is. And I think that that really speaks to all of the themes we're talking to. He's, he's someone who's in his middle age and he's coming to terms with what the world is now because the world is always new. I mean, at any time there is a, a generation of people at any moment you could pick in the entirety of human history, who are coming to terms with a world that is in some way different than the world that they were born into. Um, and that, that is kind of how this album feels to me. And I think this song really, I guess you can ask me, you, like you asked me what, what is this announcing? And I suppose that's sort of what this is announcing. And, and I hadn't really thought about this element of until just now, but you, you mentioned the South African influence. Um, it's not as though Paul Simon you know, c- created that music or, or anything, but mm-hmm. he's drawing things together. He's sort of, as as he's aging, he's reckoning with, you know, what, what does the world mean? What does this music that I'm doing mean? Maybe it doesn't just sort of mean the things I thought it does. Maybe it means all these other things as well. These other traditions that have been going mm-hmm. on since longer than I've existed that i maybe wasn't paying attention to earlier. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to put words in his mouth, obviously, who knows? But, but to me, there there's this album is such a synthesis of so many different genres and ideas and, and styles and tones. I mean, it, it, it really feels like someone coming to terms with the world They find themselves in and that and that i and that i guess everyone finds themselves in but it's it's simultaneously very expansive in terms of all these different genres it takes in but also very personal i mean this does feel to me like it comes from somebody despite being so big and disparate and expansive Mm -hmm.
2: yeah you can definitely tell he's he's opening a conversation with this music you know totally which he didn't do it without a measure of controversy obviously yeah yeah. that's that's
0: totally true yeah and i and i i was I'm not deeply um I haven't I haven't sort of deeply read into all of the history around that controversy so to uh, I, I'm aware of the broad strokes and I and I and I read what I could um I was slightly apprehensive about picking this pod this podcast about this picking this album <laughs> because I know that that it is politically controversial I mean mm-hmm, Paul Simon yeah. essentially um broke with Uh, those cultural boycott, exactly. (laughs) Cultural boycott boycott of South Africa in it's apartheid era. Um, and he, he broke with that in order to go and record with these South African musicians. And that was controversial at the time. And I, I imagine probably still remains controversial to some people today. And I know that there's also controversy among some today as to whether, um, Paul Simon sort of appropriated, uh, the South African music or culture, um, that is represented on this album. And I, I mean, I, I personally, yeah. um, it, it's hard for me to speak to the former as someone who's sort of far enough in, in history removed from those events that as someone who wasn't really conscious of them at the time due to my age, um, with respect to the sort of appropriation, um, I, it, this album to me feels so celebratory of everything that it involves and so many of the musicians involved, uh, groups like Ladysmith, Back, Black, Black Mombasa, um, were so, I mean, really benefited a lot from their exposure on this album. Which isn't to say that that would justify sort of exploitation, um, right? Right. But but to me, the the result is extremely beautiful and celebratory and and collaborative. Um, so yeah, it, it is controversial. I, I I hope that I hope that it's possible to listen to in a um, to to appreciate what is great about it, though.
1: Well, certainly. Yeah. When we listen to uh, Gum Boots, I think that's one of the more traditional i think that displays a lot of the african influence on here um and yeah to, there's a lot of issues uh to that i actually saw a, a documentary on the on graceland a few years ago and it, came, it was on some streaming service and then it you know, disappeared or something mm. uh but it, but it was interesting We well, can go ahead and play gumboots i can just kind of fill in some sure, of the details from the top. but yeah sure yeah cool so this is pretty you know traditional um I think this even might technically be a cover um, of an African song, but but yeah, I just love I love this kind of sound. Their, their guitar style is so cool to me, um, and, and their approach to rhythm. I was
4: having this discussion in a taxi. Heading down.
1: Um, but yeah, so any in, in any case, uh, he you know, Rearranged it was controversial was show, for him to go over there, um, and and they did do a tour. It was not at segregated said, venues. They made you know was that had to be down, you know. So people of all races at the shows but the african national congress apparently it was just sort of a rebel group was very um very upset about it and uh (laughs) it was actually a weird scene especially because of like who he played on the sopranos but little steven from uh bruce springsteen's band had been leading a lot of protests against south africa and had relationships with some of the leaders there and he claims that you know there was a, a splinter group of the ANC that actually planned to assassinate Paul Simon when he was there really for breaking the, the cultural boycott. Yeah. And that Steve, little Steven, you know, because they, they saw him as somebody that they knew and had been over there and stuff and led a lot of protests that he, he, he convinced them to, you know, kind of stay their hand. So, yeah, it was, it was, I think it was very heated there.
0: And I think they, I think they banned, maybe you said this, sorry, I, I, my internet cut out, but um, I think they banned Simon from from traveling to, to South Africa for some period of time.
1: I think, yeah, there was wow. a lot of, of stuff that was, was there. Um, I would say in the documentary that the musicians themselves that played with him and played on the record and played on the tour, they seemed to be very positive and they felt like it was, you know, a celebratory true, thing yeah. for, for them and that they felt like, you know, there is the cultural appropriation aspect, but they also said, you know, if he used us, you know, we, we, we went all over the world and played, you know, in orchestra halls and theaters. And, you know, it raised our profile as well. So they, I think that the musicians themselves had more of a, a not so black and white take on it. But that being said, he was, you know, a very wealthy white man kind of injecting himself into a, a highly charged political situation. And, and, you know, I would imagine there's still some resentments from that day, but I think ultimately, uh, I feel different because I think that he he's he's definitely I mean incorporating a lot of South African stuff in there but I think there's also elements of other things and and also just his songwriting voice to me kind of is very distinct like how he writes lyrical melodies and lyrics um so it doesn't feel like just a uh, just a carbon copy of it to me
0: No not at all uh, one of the most incredible things about this album is that the whole thing is a really a sort of odd and and unique synthesis of sort of uh i think kind of in some ways traditional songwriting chops which paul simon has in spades but then also a a much more modern pop music sensibility of kind of assembling an album in the editing studio from a huge amount of raw material um Hmm. so there's there's something that is but it doesn't sound like it that's what's so interesting about this i mean these songs sound so perfect and intentional and well crafted um but from what i understand of the actual recording process they were they were really taking massive amounts of material recorded uh both in south africa and in the in the us and then kind of writing the finished songs out of that material and then recording Additional material as needed to, 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 to sort of glue it all together. Um, it's really fascinating. And uh, in that, in that way, I think it, it sort of bridges, it both bridges the uh, different cultural influences on the album, all the different genres we've been talking about, and also sort of bridges different periods of pop music that Paul Simon, um, was, was moving between. And I don't, really, I don't know that that was intentional or that he thought that's what he was going to be doing or i don't even know if people would agree with me that that's what he was doing but um but he was coming from a almost a sort of poet's attitude towards songwriting um with his earlier career and then transitioning into this world of almost sort of assembling songs from sampling and from studio techniques and and kind of gluing all these things together and creating a, a coherent and cogent Whole out of all these parts and i i find that to be a, a really mesmerizing and fascinating part of this album
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah let's uh should we listen to diamonds on the soles of her shoes is kind of another i think one of the you know signature tracks of the album um and i think this this shows that kind of melding of styles very well and like here you have pretty unadulterated just you know South African singing
0: it's, yeah, Coral yeah it's of the just beautiful acapella you
4: know?
2: I think it was Rolling Stone that was maybe Pitchfork that was doing a retrospective of this at the time of the 25th anniversary and said this is like less than a hop, skip and a jump from full on doo-wop, you know and it makes you think about how closely tied the music that's here, though it sounds desperate though it sounds quote unquote foreign, scare quotes foreign, that it's very very closely related to music that we already know that he was already developing and creating as he was going I want, I want. Yeah, absolutely I want,
4: I want. Diamonds on the souls of the shoes.
1: And also, you know yeah, God, I love this
2: guitar. Oh, sorry, I just let it play.
1: Yeah, go ahead, go, go. Oh, I want to shout out somebody while this plays. Um, I looked him up. Bakithi Kumalo
0: mm-hmm. is
1: a the fretless bass player on most of this album. And like, oh, interesting. Th- this guy is all over like this album. This is a really great bass album, especially like fretless bass. But it really the, is a
0: good bass album. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, and
1: he he also does the the, the famous break, and you can call me Al. Uh, but yeah, so that Mackyzi Kamalo, uh, he definitely uh, shout out to him. He's he's one of the definite musical drivers, I think, besides Simon on this
3: album.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually want to I, I want to mention something about that that bass break and you can call me Al, um, because I I think it actually speaks directly in a way to some of the stuff I was just talking about with respect to how this album was created because. That, uh, the section you're referring to, you know, it's like, I don't know, five seconds. Maybe it's this really intense, short bass solo. But then at the halfway point of the solo, um, the, the second half of it is just the first half mirrored. So he plays his bass line, and then it just reverses back. They just reverse the tape and it plays oh, backwards and it sounds so when you listen to it, it's not necessarily obvious that that's what's happening. But when you know that's what's happening and you listen carefully, you can you can definitely tell it's got that it's got that sort of almost like sucking sound of of, of, of reversed tape. And the reason I that I think it's so interesting and that I wanted to jump in on that is that um, it's actually it's it's one of the rare examples on this album that all of everything that's going on in the studio, the sort of creation of the album through raw material, is actually put front and center right into the listener's ear. Um, most of the sort of cut and pasting and studio assembly on this album is extremely seamless and and really um it's very subtle and it's used to create really self-contained, beautiful songs. Uh, but that little bass break on You Can Call Me Al it's like taking studio uh, post-production and putting it right in your face just for a few seconds. And I, and I kind of love that there's a little dip into that for, for this brief moment.
1: That's like Uh, diabolical. Just, I'm sure like guys back then in cover bands were just killing themselves trying to learn this (laughs) thing. You know what I mean? That's like, yeah, absolutely. It's like, well, he, he didn't do it. Um, Why don't, you know, we brought it up. I think we got to hear it, Jason. I think it's at, it's at 3:43. So maybe bring it back to like, you know, 3.30 3.30 if you can call me out but it, it's it is it's such an iconic little kind of slap bass breakdown but i i never knew that now i i've always that's always kind of boggled my mind that break and that makes sense now but like his bass playing this song is just incredible
0: mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah, there
2: you go <laughs> I, I've i always like resented slightly in the same way that like cover, cover artists must uh, <laughs> I've resented that slightly because like the rest of the song pretty straightforward <laughs> and then it gets to that point and you're like I'm just gonna let him take it Big Eithy, just walk away with that because I'm I'm not touching that
0: <laughs> yeah totally
2: I sort of talked over it, but my favorite part of that song is um, when in this final chorus, when the horns start building like the full triad, they pull build from just the melody line to adding triplets to adding the fifth and having the whole chord move at once, just very slowly and subtly. Um, it's like the whole album to me, like it slowly builds to a crescendo with that song. And then the rest of it is, you know, like Homeless, the following track, Crazy Love. They're much more mid-tempo.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. We should listen to Crazy love. That was one that I didn't remember as well, but kind of as I've been listening to it this past you know, week or so, it kind of jumped out at me. I just love that kind of spidery like guitar lines. you know they never really like use like chords in the way that American guitar players do.
0: Yeah, there's always motion going on.
4: charlie the archangel sloped into the moon he said i have no opinion
2: about this so what about it stuck out to you on this lesson then matt
1: i i just it was such a really good song you know lyrically melodically i love the i love the guitar playing on this and you know i just in general i mean I, i do you know listen to a fair amount of african guitar stuff and i just i mean maybe chris you could speak to this too but i you know, if you grow up in Western culture, it's just like, you know, there's there's eight notes to a scale and there's minor and major. I kind of, it's interesting to listen to people that grew up outside of that musical environment, right? Because they just don't, things that seem like sort of set in stone to me, you know, even if I try to expand my mind, I'm still sort of tied to that idea of like, do, re, mi, fa, sol la, ti, do and four, four and stuff. So it's just their different rhythmic approach to music and even like, you know, some, I think microtones in between, like you know, the whole steps and half steps, is kind of. It's always interesting to hear people from cultures that have different a different musical foundation.
4: She says
2: she knows about. Should we go anywhere from here? Um, I have timestamps from Chris for homeless.
4: Yeah, let's do that. Wanna make life live? Somebody say <coughs> Somebody sing Hello, hello, hello Somebody say <coughs> Somebody cry Why, why, why Somebody say <coughs> Somebody sing <coughs> Hello, hello, hello Somebody say <coughs> Somebody cry <coughs> Why, why, why
3: <coughs>
0: So why this segment, Chris? Why did you send me these timestamps? Um, well, it's uh, sort of, I suppose, similar to um, when you when you picked out uh, the uh, introduction to Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. You know, like I was saying earlier, so much of this album is this incredibly complex studio assembly of so much material. I mean, it's just it's just an incredibly intricate album. It's so layered. There's so much going on. And I love these moments. You get a couple of them on the album, including this one, where you just get the voices in this case of Paul Simon and uh, the group Ladysmith Black Mambazo and the, the lead singer of that group um joseph uh, shabalala who just i mean he and simon just have unbelievably beautiful voices and because there's so much going on in the album you're not always necessarily paying attention to just that sonority of the voice which is something that earlier in in simon's career particularly simon and garfunkel i mean that's that was a huge part of what that group was about right i mean just the the beauty of these of these voices melding Um this album is there's so much more uh, complexity in terms of everything going on in the recording. And so these moments where you just get the human voice totally unadulterated Um mm-hmm. it packs, it just packs a huge punch um in comparison. I, I just find, I, I find this, this track to be just unbelievably beautiful. The, I think the, maybe the one of the only things we haven't talked about, uh, so far which is something that's i think uh, most people would correctly think is a is a a pretty key part of of Paul Simon or any Paul Simon work really is is the lyrics and there was something that struck me when I was listening to gumboots we listened to a part of gumboots earlier um but there's that that line when he says uh saying we walking down the same street together on the very same day i said hey señorita uh, that's astute. I said we should get together and call ourselves an institute. And <laughs> there's something about that line that's like it. It demonstrates a sort of easy facility with language that I think is very characteristic of Paul Simon. This ability to to throw words together in an incredibly simple but very very clever way that that sounds effortless, but 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 is you know, actually extremely difficult to to come up with. Um with lines that's that pithy and clever and the reason i i call that one out in particular is because in that very same song um a in the, the the sort of main chorus line that repeats throughout is this line you don't feel you love me but i feel you could and that is a line that's not really self-consciously clever or snappy or pithy at all the way that that previous line I read is and I and there's something that really struck me when I was listening in preparation for this podcast when I when I got to that point um, that the line that is is actually sort of less ornate less composed less clever is the one that is so much more sincere and yearning you know it's not the mm-hmm. it's not the sort of cool facade on the exterior of a guy who can put a really clever couplet together it's it's this very straightforwardly expressed um poignant and and kind of sad emotion and that that was something that really wrapped up a lot of the vibe of this album to me you know you have someone who's been a songwriter for a successful songwriter literally for decades at this point which is sort Mm -hmm. of sort of amazing to 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 consider someone operating at the forefront of their craft for, for that long. It's, it's difficult, I think in any field. And, but when it comes down to these particular, um, baseline raw emotions, there's, there's almost no craft, or at least I shouldn't say no craft. There's almost no, uh, sort of showy craft applied to it at all. It's, it's almost unvarnished and completely bare and raw. And I I love the I love the the juxtaposition of those those two attitudes to to lyric writing in the same song in relatively cr- close proximity. It just really struck me, and I yeah, think sums a up comparison. a lot about this album. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That like that describes my experience with the two. I hadn't really listened beyond the singles to this album before this, and it is like it's that sort of pedestrian approach to an earnest expression of you know, whatever frustration, emotion, sadness, joy, uh, uh, you know, contrasted against like very polished production, very clean, very like, obviously it was worked hard at to create these songs, but sort of that play, that balance, it's very like fun and weirdly lighthearted for, you know, the, the conditions surrounding it and the, like some of what he's, I think you already touched on in "Boy in the Bubble." Uh, some of the subject matter is, you know, rather grim, uh, and it's just that magic spot that he seems to operate in as a as a songwriter, and it just like opening up to a new world, quote unquote, of of sound of music. Let him express that in so much more interesting ways than sticking in folk or rock would have. Totally, um, absolutely, so, yeah. yeah,
4: yeah, very, very. Yeah, I mean, it a, was a,
1: it was a great synthesis, you know, of, of those influences and, and and pop music of the day, and and you know, maybe some of his folk background, and right, you know, for sure, such a distinctive sound. I mean that, I mean, hell, it it worked in nineteen eighty six, and it worked in you know whatever two thousand seven when Vampire Weekend basically, you know, took this sound over and you know they're that I, th- I always thought they were highly influenced by Graceland so it, it definitely has lasted all right well <laughs> this show because of our our blind picks uh format we definitely get some you know jarring uh juxtapositions i guess of music oh, so, interesting.
0: We're gonna, so we're going sorry so you also didn't know what i was choosing when you chose yours Oh yes, it's no, a surprise. No, it's a surprise no, to both yeah. of you. Oh, that am, is so I am the, interesting. The, the, the I was the page master back <laughs> here. Yeah, I was trying to figure out. Like, so interesting. I wonder what it was. I wonder what it was about Graceland that that prompted this pick in response. I was, so, I was ah. like trying to figure out. That's so interesting. Okay, <laughs> I, I, I love that. That's, yeah, that, I'm. I'm glad I thought that though because uh I'm actually glad I thought that because I think that's. That that made that maybe forced my brain down some avenues it may not otherwise have gone. Awesome,
1: yeah. So you're kind of now becoming part of my my weird little like obsession of like the past five years, which Jason unfortunately has been subjected
2: (laughs) to (laughs) the Blue Oyster (laughs) Cult cult.
1: I kind of like I knew Blue Oyster Cult obviously, you know they had you know Godzilla and Don't Fear the Reaper and the the more you know they were a classic rock band and I you know I like classic rock and whatever, but for some reason I, I got super into Blue Oyster Cult about maybe five, six years ago. And there was a period maybe of six months where I pretty much only listened to Blue Oyster Cult.
0: Wow. (laughs) That is fascinating.
1: Like, and, and I, I, I keep trying to understand, um, why.
0: Yourself.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's just sort of like, I think, I think the thing I like about certain bands is I just can't figure them out Hmm. and I can't really figure out why Blue Oyster Cult is the way they are because they're like on the, there's sort of like a surface level to them. That's, that's like, you know, they're a seventies hard rock band and you know, there was many of those. And, but like, the more you listen to it is just whether it's just like bizarre lyrics or sort of odd changes in songs or, or odd melodic approaches to songs that are still within this overall framework of like a seventies, you know, heavy metal band or whatever. But they're there's sort of a, a very strange band um, in some ways to me. And I kind of became very fascinated with them. Uh, this is their third album, Secret Treaties. Uh, this kind of finds them on the cusp of their earlier stuff, which is kind of more raw. The mm-hmm. next album, Agents of Fortune, which had "Don't Fear the Reaper," that kind of made a much bigger, new commercial band. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why I picked this, but I, I was like, I've been wanting to pick it on the show for a while, and
2: uh, I, was, I, no- I was wondering when you would. Yeah,
1: yeah, I have no <laughs> idea how you react to it, but because uh, I don't think I think most people kind of see them as somewhat of a punchline to that you know, Saturday Night Live sketch. Mm-hmm um so anyway i don't know chris you can take it away but i don't know what your impressions of uh, secret treaties were well, well i guess jason we should let's play a little bit of i don't know first track career yeah. of evil is one of their uh you know i've seen them in concert and uh th- this is like a, a live staple uh-huh.
0: So, yeah, I, I, (laughs) so starting with this song, obviously, which is the first thing I'd heard of this album ever. I'd never heard this album before. And in fact, uh, I had never, I don't really even know that I'd heard anything by Blue Oyster Cult other than Don't Fear the Reaper, the song, which of course everybody knows. And it's a, it's a great song. I, I genuinely love that song. I think it's fantastic, but I, but I never acquainted myself with anything else from this band and i think i said in the bit that you um used possibly in the intro i think i my 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 naive reaction was i think they were like music critics or something and i think i was not entirely accurate about that i think think (laughs) one of them maybe was that and there was some overlap in terms of their lyric right some of the people who wrote lyrics for them and things like this so i was i was a little off base there but but i but i was when I listened the opening song, speaking of announcements, you know we talked about an album announcing itself. This album announces itself in a very weird way because the the lyrics to this opening track are sort of almost demented i mean the the stuff that the singer <laughs> describes wanting to do to the listener and the listener's daughter and wife and money. Um, it is incredibly bizarre, and apparently the lyrics to that were written by Patty Smith, which is which is really an interesting <laughs> yeah. and, and cool, um, cool. cool detail. But um, anyway, I should get to my overall thoughts about the album, which uh, took me a couple listens to try and come to, because I think I didn't know what to make of this when I listened to it first as well. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Matt, you were saying, oh, you know, they're sort of a, a 70s heavy metal band, and I think that was sort of my first take when i when i listened to this i was like yeah okay it's one of these like i basically know what this is um Mm. and then i kept listening to it and i and i and i i got into it more and more i probably listened to it you know four four times or so over the past couple days um and there's something about it that is a really interesting mix of uh kind of tongue-in-cheek humor and sort of weird um like kind of prog stuff. And, uh, there's a lot of, um, technical, uh, virtuosity, but also there's just moments of, of flat out jamming. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a really interesting collection of different things. And I, and I wish I had, I really wish I had known about this album like 20 years ago. Uh, because I, I, in my teen years, I would have gotten incredibly into this. And I could totally imagine uh, that sort of planting a seed that would have led me into a similar sort of Blue Oyster Cult fugue state uh, to what you described, Matt. <laughs> um, I, I, I can I'm, totally yeah, imagine I, that happening. I've, I've had moments like that. Uh, like, I, I don't know if you know, for instance, like Queen's first two albums, Queen and Queen 2. Do you know those albums at all?
1: Oh, no, I, I those are the more like kind of progressive rock queen records, right? I don't yeah, know those yeah. too
0: well. Yeah, totally. They're like uh they're sort of like prog metal sort of albums. And if you if if you if if this is a band that you found fascinating, I would really recommend going and listening to uh Queen and Queen Two because they're very different that I mean I, I absolutely adore the sort of main main era of queen i i they're they're one of my favorite bands and i absolutely love that stuff but but almost almost separately i i really adore the very early albums of queen which are much more of this kind of uh like heavy technical uh heavy technical sort of rock uh it's really fascinating and i similarly got into a thing where i would go like 2 weeks and i would just listen to those two albums all the time like I, I would i for some reason was just obsessed with this and i think part of what obsessed me about it was that no one talks about it like you you don't hear about those albums very much but i but i really really enjoyed them and thought they were so interesting and they pointed in all these different directions that uh weren't actually where queen the band ended up going um but you yeah. can hear all kinds of other things in it and i, I sort of felt that way listening to this as well, like there would be moments on this album where, where you sort of hear bits of, of what you could hear later in like Devo or, um, or like, uh, um, Mr. Bungle or something like that. I mean, there's like little, uh, just totally different anywhere from five to 10 to 20 years later, uh, little things that, that sort of resurface. And I found that, I found that very fascinating.
1: Let's listen to Dominson's submission because, you know, these guys do kind of figure a little bit as sort of a, I don't know, proto-punk band. You know, they had, um, Patty Smith wrote for them because her and Alan Lanier from Blue Easter Cult actually were in a relationship for, Ooh. I think, about eight years and lived together in New York. So, you know, they were definitely aware of all that kind of New York stuff, um, that was happening, you know, with like Patty Smith and, you know, mm-hmm. television and suicide and talking heads early stuff. So totally, they kind yeah. of straddled. Line between like kind of a New York hipster kind of thing and like they were also from Long Island and kind of a hard rock band at the same time. Um but this this I think dominance or and submission definitely has like a kind of you know you can start to hear like a little bit of that kind of hype punk energy to this as opposed to like a big lumbering kind of like black sabbath riff let's get that kind of choppy tebow kind of thing you know.
2: <laughs> that part always gets me like i don't expect uh, the robert plant moment
1: <laughs> yeah they're weird man they it's hard like yeah they had, they definitely they uh sandy perlman uh, uh, wrote a lot of lyrics he was just sort of manager svengali guy and so he wrote lyrics. A guy named Richard Meltzer, who was an early rock critic, wrote lyrics for them. They they used a lot of outside lyricists, which is sort of rare for a, a rock band. You know, like, yeah. maybe like Elton John's the only guy I can really think of.
0: But Elton John had this sort of one. That's almost like a,
1: a one it's almost like one.
0: part of one act, right? Because it's just it was consistent for the entire career.
1: Yeah, and later they used Michael Moorcock. I don't know if he, he was like a British sci-fi writer.
0: I'm, I'm aware of him. I never read his work. I, I, I'm aware
1: of oh, he's him. Right I Weird, dune paperback kind of era, you know? Yeah,
0: totally. ooh love time.
1: Oh, yeah. I love that so much. Oh. But yeah, they, they definitely... there's They're weird because, like, it, there's this kind of, like... Are they kind of just fucking with us and, like, kind of joking or... You know, because they kind of set up this, like, we're a heavy metal band, and this song is called Dominance Submission, mm-hmm. and it's, like, going to be this, like, heavy, you know, like, bondage, sex thing, and then the lyrics are kind of, like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what they're even about, really, and they're yeah, certainly totally. not about, and, like, and it's, like and that.
0: It's, and this song is a great example of the sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, nature of this of this album, and possibly this band, for all I know. I, I, I mainly know this album now. Um, but... Uh, as it gets into the the sort of call and response bit where they're saying dominant submission and then you've got the sort of almost barbershop bass guy in the background <laughs> yeah, going
1: the radios radios appear. Appear.
0: you know there's something that that's like you could you could that that could be straight out of devo or they might be giants or something weird like that uh you know there there is a there is a tongue-in-cheek you couldn't you couldn't have that in there if you were taking yourself completely seriously right and yeah, then yeah. as the guy in the background is yelling submission in this increasingly frenzied way it's almost like the sort of pastiche sort of parody version of the of the the um like german abstract expressionism like mad scientist figure from from cinema or something right like it's there's something crazed and 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 self-consciously gonzo about it um that that you don't you don't necessarily expect from what a lot of the musical material on the album is which is a lot of it is 70s heavy metal right but then there's this other stuff that's injected throughout and and some just totally bonkers lyrics as well mm-hmm. uh you've got a timestamp stamp later on in the song around
2: 248 i'm going to jump to that i think you might be talking about that i specific
1: yep. portion this is a great part
3: People do the poker. Submission.
2: <laughs> it's like an Oak Ridge Boys moment in the middle of this creepy <laughs> prog track. Radios I love it.
3: Submission.
1: But it's also like it rocks. It's catchy at the same time as ridiculous yeah. it is.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think there's got to be. You mentioned that the Bloister cult worked with a bunch of different lyricists and, and a lot of outside lyrics. And I think there must be that, that must really, that must influence um, what comes out on the other end musically, because I do think um, as, as a musician, I do think there's something very different about coming up with the, the lyrics and the music in combination at the same time versus essentially scoring to something which is you know which i've i've written songs music and lyrics but i've also done soundtracks that are um obviously that are you're scoring to something that's going to be happening or or that a player's interacting with and and they're Mm -hmm. different things and i and i think there's a bit of that with writing to somebody else's lyrics as well especially and this part i have to i have to kind of use my imagination rather than draw on direct experience but Writing against different lyrics coming from different sources that could be basically anything. Um, I would imagine is part of what's pushing the band in different directions and, and prompting, uh, different musical ideas. Um, because rock lyrics on their own, I mean, if you, if you read rock lyrics without the music attached, like they're, they're almost always totally absurd. I mean, even, even, even among the best rock lyrics when you just read them as language they're sort of ridiculous and often don't really suggest how they would actually become married to music in a way that mm. actually has the ring of of poetry and meter to it um and there are times on this album when sometimes i feel as though the 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 alignment of the words to the musical meter is sort of odd not in a bad way yeah, oh, for sure but, but in a way that's like it, it <clears throat> almost feels like they are taking the these musics that were written by somebody else and then saying all right let's map this let's map this onto this music that we're coming up with but be, but let's almost do it in the Maybe the second most appropriate way instead of the most <laughs> appropriate way, like almost, almost on purpose. I kind of think like it feels like an intentional choice in most cases. Um, mm. and I, and I, and I find that to be really fascinating. And I sort of suspect it's easier to force yourself into that place if the lyrics are coming from a completely outside source and you're almost not too close to them. Uh, you know, like when you're, when you're writing your own lyrics to your own music, it's, it's like sometimes the choices can be sort of too easy because you're doing the thing that's kind of the lowest resistance to produce in the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can be a huge sink in, in creativity is that, is, is when things don't have enough resistance attached and you can sort of take the path of least resistance. And there's listening to this album it's uh I I really do believe that there's there's something there with the lyrics coming from an external source that pushes things in just a slightly more unusual or interesting direction than it might have otherwise gone.
1: Yeah, no, it, there's totally that that idea that they're either wrangling music around words or words around music, probably depending on, you know, uh where when when in the process they received the lyrics from, you know, the person that was writing them. Uh they they do um this actually we should listen to as we're talking about this, uh, the song "Cagey Cretins," um, this was written by uh, R- Richard Meltzer, who was kind of like a real out there, uh, music critic of the '60s and '70s. But uh, this is one of my favorite, like, sort of weird, like juxtapositions of a, uh, a real anthemic thing with like lyrics that are like what, um, so yeah, let's play K.G. Cretins."
2: covered uh, two yeah. van halen albums on this show yeah. with well, author uh, greg Renoff. and uh, <laughs> and that moment reminds me of of that episode <laughs> yeah where he's just like super arena rock shouting
1: but okay here it's coming up but this is like one of my favorite like just i don't know the way they they present this is such an anthemic line versus what it says is it, oh yeah Oh, maybe it's later. It's it's so lonely in the state of Maine. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, I oh, just yeah, did that. yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's a good example of. I mean, it's maybe a good example of what I was talking about. I actually have no idea, but you could imagine, right, a lyricist sitting down and writing something like "It's so lonely in the state of Maine." And you could, you know, maybe what's going through their brain is something uh, sort of placid or something quiet or introspective, or or, so, or who knows, right? Um, and then and then the band gets it, and whoever's uh, whoever's working on on that part, whoever's doing the lead vocal, they just decide, you know what, I'm going, I'm just going in a totally different direction with this, and I have absolutely no clue if that's what happened in this case. For all I know, it was the total opposite, but. Uh, But it's easy to imagine how that kind of thing could happen, and and uh, and it's interesting, right? Like it's it's an interesting contrast. I love
2: how kind of creepy and tense it makes every track feels.
0: You know, like
2: everything is just slightly off, uh, and it makes me listen to it a lot harder than I would have otherwise. Here we go. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> it's, you know, cause it's presented as this almost kind of like AC/DC like moment or yeah, something. Totally. It's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And the previous thing before yeah. that is being chased around by the neighbor's cat. It's so lonely <laughs> in the state of Maine. But like, I mean, and, and to explain a little bit, like these guys definitely have, uh, they were a, a, a band. They sort of had various incarnations. One was a stock forest group and then was Soft White Underbelly. And then they became Blue Oyster Cult. But Sandy Proman, their manager, was a, I mean, he's a real out there guy. He was kind of this weird, like, Philosopher, poet, rock producer guy And he had this whole thing that was That's never been published It was supposedly called The Soft Doctrine of Imaginos Which was like this long kind of hmm. cult saga That the Blue Oyster cult thing was part of hmm. So there's a lot of like weird stuff in, in in their sort of mythology That I've never really been able to fully entangle but Wow uh, it, it def- Their roots are definitely In that kind of late 60s Like, you know, acid head Kind of
0: totally. cult stuff uh, have you actually, sorry, on that, Matt, on that note, have you, do you know that the album Aorta by the Chicago band Aorta? No, I don't. Okay. This is, here's my, here's my other recommendation for you just based on, um, based on listening to this. And then again, you saying you went into that sort of blue oyster cult, uh, trance for a period of time. You should, you should, uh, check out the album, the self-titled album Aorta. It is, uh, it is pretty bonkers it's it's more psychedelic than this album uh but there are definite um there are definite connections and i i really think i would be very curious to hear your take on that album uh if you seek it out and give it a listen
1: i will like Aorta probably because i like pretty much any band of weirdos from like 1968 through like 1974 (laughs) that had yep a failed album that was like on a major label at one point Next song I'd like to get into. Uh, to me, this is if I had to pick, maybe my favorite Blue Oyster Cult song. I think this would be it, "Flaming Telepath." It's kind of, it's pretty much got it all. It's very epic. Uh, Chris, what was your your oh, thought this on was, this
0: one? This was my favorite song on the album. Yeah, absolutely. Ooh, same. I thought same. this was fantastic. Yeah, I think I this think is I actually sense. on my first on my first listen. I think this was maybe the the first song that I was fully like, yeah, I'm I'm really into this. And then I got more into the album as a whole as I listened to it. Uh, uh, more, but this song, like, I, I really immediately connected with. Yeah,
1: this is great and the dramatic open. It's it's awesome. I love that. Yep. I always love that one piano note over like a chord change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that to me like kind of coming out of the 60s and like the watergate kind of era is like mm-hmm. i'm out for rebellion I'll settle for lies just seemed like a really like good one off kind of line yeah
0: i love that lyric
3: By the water, what to do?
1: Great use of synth on this, too, as well. Mm-hmm.
3: Experiments that too many times. Transformations that
1: were too What was it that stuck out about this one to you?
0: Uh, there's something about this track that is... It, it really, I think, bridged the gap for me fully between the sort of uh, prog, like, technical, leaning elements of this album with the tongue-in-cheek streak that also runs through the album. there's something about it that that all tied together uh, in a way that I found uh, incredibly satisfying. It was a real it it sort of brought all that together in one fully formed statement that I thought uh, was really effective. I'm also this is a pretty superficial thing but I am a huge sucker for songs that come in and go out in interesting ways and this song does both. It comes in over that, um, what sounds like a, a, a music a recording of a music box. Um, yeah. it, it slams mm. into that with this drum fill, and then the song kicks off. And then it goes out in this crescendoing chorus. And then, And by the way, that chorus itself, um, w- what is the line? It's, it's saying, and the joke's on you, right? That's repeating, mm-hmm, and yeah. it's getting louder and louder. And then that just slams into a brick wall. <laughs> to make the way make way for the final track astronomy in a way that was very reminiscent of um, on uh, on abbey road by the beatles the way i want you she's so heavy uh it's crescendoing upwards and then just absolutely hits a wall to segue directly into here comes the sun Um, that's one of my favorite uh that's one of my absolute favorite moments on any album ever that that transition and um so again in a very superficial way i was just I was very uh, delighted by um, this, this taking essentially the same approach. I just, I love that. Uh, and the, the, um, the chorus of this song, just from, just also from a purely musical standpoint, I just find to be a really great little construction. It's just, mm-hmm. a, it's just a good song in a lot of different ways. It is. Uh,
2: let's jump to that outro. It's about the last 30 seconds you left me. So I'm going yeah. to fly there.
1: I want to call it that last, uh, guitar solo too because I, I think Buck Dharma is a really I mean he definitely has that you know he's a hard rock guitarist so it can be kind of chopsy but I always feel like he has a very unique and kind of uh, strong melodic sense like he's he's definitely he's picking out of scales that aren't just kind of like pentatonic kind of 70s blues mm-hmm. stuff
2: alright here's the outro to Flaming Telepath. That's great
1: seen them live and this could be like twice as long by the way <laughs> i believe it and it's awesome <laughs> but even just this like this chorus like the jokes on you it's like it goes back to that like totally is this all just a wind-up or yep. you know what I mean absolutely
2: and there's your kick into astronomy
0: there you go yeah i love
1: Another thing they have is a strong piano element. Like they had a dedicated keyboardist, which some of those bands didn't have.
0: Yeah, uh, that's true. And the there was when it kicked the when the way the album kicks off with um, Career of Evil, which is a super fun song. um, The organ part in that is pretty straightforward, and I I was that was something I was sort of um, I don't know, sort of skeptical for i I'm like, oh, this just sounds like. It's just organ chords, like like a lot it's of kind of seventies like rock bands. They were big Doors fans, um, I think. That makes sense. Uh, and then as the album goes on, the the piano and keyboard parts, there's a lot, there's a, there's a, a lot more variety, and uh, and so you know I came into it with this sort of like skepticism almost, um, and I was really I was really won over won over by the end of the album, and because there are some great keyboard parts.
1: Yeah, it's all up very, very Mm nicely. Piano
2: in classic Prague fashion. This is a six and a half minute song, so I'm going to jump to your timestamp at two minutes, Chris. Oh sure.
1: This was also covered by, uh, so may famously by Metallica. Oh really? Um, Yeah, they did these garage kind of like it was just stuff they they covered in their garage band days that they did uh, some covers albums and which I, I read an interview with Joe Bouchard from Blue Is Called who said that was uh at that time especially in like the late 90s they were not at their high ebb and that uh kind of kept everyone yeah. fed for a while i think metallic doing that <laughs> cover
0: oh that's that's good yeah i should i should seek that out i bet that's a i bet that's a fun cover i love this rip there
1: Yeah, to me, once you kind of get get used to their sort of weird musical vocabulary, they they really are, I think, amazing songwriters. Um, like they do a lot more than just kind of stitch like one riff and two riffs together, which is, can kind of be sort of like a hard rock format.
0: Yeah, no, totally. There's a lot going on, and the th- the and the and the reason and 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 then the other on the other almost the other side of the coin, the thing that the the reason I, I picked out that segment is because. Um, I, I, I kind of love when. So, bands like. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm blathering here. So, there's no, bands no, that sometimes can be, you know, highly technical, right? Bands like Pink Floyd or King Crimson, uh, where sometimes they're, they can be sort of. I mean, and those are great bands. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I don't mean this negatively. Like, I, I love King Crimson. I love Pink Floyd. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they can be too technical for their own good. And I, I love moments when bands like that. Uh, sort of let let go for a second and just jam out with a really good groove, and that happens sometimes with Pink Floyd. That happens sometimes with King Crimson, and that totally happens in this song when they start the the the, the chorus where they just go, "Hey, hey," uh, and it's just a really good groove and a really good jam, uh, and just the the simplest rock lyric you can possibly have um and i i you know there's there's moments like that in this kind of album that are just incredibly fun and you you kind of need that kind of thing um to to just um uh to like musically lighten the mood in addition to like there's so many different types of humor on this album um but that's just like it's not even tongue-in-cheek humor it's just it's just a fun jam uh and it's it's totally a blast
1: another great solo here but but yeah they they sort of maintain a lot of weird influences like some progressive stuff some kind of odd like leftovers from like the 60s kind of acid rock thing and then maybe some edging towards what punk would become but like at the end of the day too they sort of maintain this like kind of a bar band thing at the same time yeah they never get too away from that like Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know we're playing on a saturday night kind of thing totally here would for like like almost some yes stuff breaks out for like 30 seconds
2: not a 70s song if you don't have that uh, ride symbol just going crazy at the end of the album All right. That's the one.
1: Well, I'm I'm I was a little nervous. I didn't know how, how you were gonna react, Chris. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs>
0: yeah, it. I really I did.
1: Like Blue is cult kind of is it's like it became enough of a meme almost with the Will Ferrell sketch that sometimes I, I bring them up to people and it's like they're almost like Blue are recalled. I'm like, no, no, they're good. Trust me, trust <laughs> me. Uh so I yeah, they're just a, an interesting, kind of fascinating a bunch of weirdos to me. Um so, totally. Thanks again. Uh, this is awesome, and again, you know the Paul, St- uh, Paul Stanley from Giz. Paul Simon uh, <laughs> discussion was great as well. That Paul Stanley and Paul Simon, the Pauls, they should do Paul and Paul. Uh, Paul Anka. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but this has been super fun. Uh, would you have time to uh, stick around for a couple of uh, community questions?
2: Oh, sure. Okay. Shouldn't take more than a couple minutes. Hey, editing note here. We were having some connection issues recording this episode, so we had to cut our community segment short. Uh, you can still listen to songs suggested by our community on the Crossfade Community Spotify playlist linked in the show notes. And our listener song this week is Peter Gabriel's 1977 hit Salisbury Hill, which was suggested by Michael Gibbler. Thank you, Michael. And thanks to everyone who left a song or question. Uh, thank you so much to everybody who sent in questions. Of course, we put up a post before every episode uh, records so that we can solicit questions from our supporters uh, on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash minmax. You get access to the Discord, access to sending us songs and questions. We'll play one of our community suggested songs on the way out. But these are all coming from listeners like you. So uh, please find us at patreon.com slash minmax. whole lot of benefits, whole lot of fun ways to support us and keep things rolling. Then our first question comes from spiral in your eyes who says, I know it's not related to music, but my only topic request is any sort of comment on the future of idle thumbs and important of true, even if just a brief mention because those podcasts are sorely
0: missed. Um, well, thank you for the kind words I, uh, I don't have, it's probably not very likely that those podcasts return. Um, not for any sort of sinister reason or anything. Um, it's just uh logistically it's just probably not going to happen. I do miss podcasting regularly. I do have to say I would love to I really would love to figure out a way to um sustainably get back into podcasting. And doing this has been really fun. I'm glad I'm glad you guys had me on the show for this because I I do miss uh speaking into a microphone for for whatever reason. Um uh and and I miss doing those shows and the uh but yeah, pro- probably not. Uh, returning directly in the in the near future mm. uh, well if i might recommend um
2: what you need is to find like like a heel you need to have somebody that you can blame that on uh, because i don't feel <laughs> like people accept well you know logistically it's it's not going to work logistically it's not going to happen like you need to have like just say ben hansen is stopping you from it or something like just just send somebody under the bus <laughs> that
0: was nick Brecken, that guy <laughs> how dare he for your ass foil neck. me yeah. again
2: Please direct all inquiries. Um, our second question. Uh, sorry, I need to scroll back up because I made a timestamp of that. Cade um, Mead says, for Chris, do you have a particular instrument that you gravitate toward playing
0: or like to include in your work? Um, yeah, I think I think so. Not intentionally. Um, but a thing that some people have noticed, and that is, I think, certainly true, is that I really like electric piano. Um, that shows up a lot. Um uh, electric piano meaning like electromechanical piano, so a Fender Rhodes or a Wurlitzer piano, mm. something like that. Um, amplified acoustic piano, essentially, that use um, reeds or tines, uh, um, so as distinct from a synthesizer. And I, there's something about that sound that I really love. For me, it really splits the difference between the warmth of the warmth and sort of hu- human scale of an acoustic instrument and then something that is a bit more attenuated or modulated. Um, I, I, I don't know why, but I, I find myself in soundtrack work really drawn to electric piano. Um, and it, c- it comes out a fair amount. Um I tend to write a lot on kind of more. Uh, I often start either on traditional piano or guitar simply because those are the two instruments i'm most familiar with um and then often the piano becomes electric piano on the final score
3: hmm.
2: uh matt i know that you're less into recording these days than you used to be but is there anything that you got to have in a track
1: Uh, i don't know i mean actually lately i've been i've actually been recording a few things i got uh, I've, oh really I've been trying midi i've been trying to understand like ableton and I got Ooh. a mini controller, so I've been using a lot of like soft synths and
2: you're gonna make some great lo fi chill hop mixes yes. for me.
1: I mean I wanna I wanna get into the lo fi chill beats to study and relax too market. <laughs> um I think that's where my career's headed. Um but yeah, I guess I just was sort of like in a rut. Um but I, I guess in general one thing I like a lot is I like I like kind of like an analog, like old like synth sounds and mm-hmm. um acoustic guitars together. I think there's always a cool um I like I like the real synthetic sound with like a real like acoustic sound together. I always find that a nice, um, nice a nice like combo to me.
2: Yeah, nice contrast. Our next question also comes from Cade Mead, who asks: Are there any games soundtracks that you feel are overlooked, and you can't say Firewatching, you can't say Gone Home?
0: <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, uh, I would like to think I would not have said so. Um, <laughs> uh, I would like to think I'm not that churlish, but um, yeah. So. <laughs> I think one of the, one of the, um, I think certainly for my money, one of the best game composers working today is, uh, is Jessica Curry. And, uh, so I don't, I don't know if, I mean, she's high profile enough that I don't know that any of her soundtracks would be considered overlooked, but she did a soundtrack to, uh, a game called, so let us melt. I think all of her soundtracks are for, um, the Chinese room because she's one of the co-founders of that studio. And so this game is by them, but I I believe it's a, it's a VR game or something. I've never actually played the game because I remember when it came out, it was sort of in some format that I didn't have access to, but I listened to her soundtrack to it. And I assume that because the game had sort of a, a limited reach, I assume that the soundtrack is not very widely known. And I think it's just fantastic. It's a really great blend of like incredibly beautiful choral music with sort of synthesizer elements um it's just it's just incredibly beautiful i mean i think anything by jessica curry is fantastic and and this is a a great soundtrack that that i suspect is probably quite overlooked and Um, what game was that again uh, it's called so let us melt so that I, I couldn't tell you what the game itself is. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> um, but I do know that the soundtrack is very good. Wonderful. Yeah, and then oh, another right. another one that's sort of just a uh, maybe not overlooked, but but is I'm going to use it because it's it's on the older side as far as games go, being a pretty young medium, uh, which is the soundtrack to Grim Fandango, which is uh, hmm. from 1998 by Peter McConnell the Tim Schafer designed adventure game for LucasArts. And uh, I don't know if it's overlooked or not, but it's the reason I bring it up is because it's a very unusual soundtrack in that it uh, it takes a bunch of different influences, um jazz, mariachi music, music, uh, kind of film noir film score style, orchestral music. And it blends it all together. Sometimes on different tracks that are, you know, you'll get a track that's a mariachi track, you'll have a track that's a jazz track, you'll have a track that's a sort of classic Hollywood film score track, and then at times these things blend together. And the the, the reason I, I think it's so so interesting and worthwhile is that these just aren't genres you hear very much of in video game soundtracks uh, at any point, then or now. Uh, and I love I love the eclecticism of it and how perfectly it fits the game that it's a part of, which, which itself is a is a pretty astonishing um, uh, almost pastiche of of very different um, stylistic stylistic influences. Um, It's just, it's just a great, really cool, really ambitious soundtrack. Nice.
1: Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been a super fun discussion. Totally enjoyed your pick and I'm glad you got something out of blue oyster cult. That makes me happy. Um, For sure.
0: uh, Yeah. This was a blast.
1: Yeah, hopefully maybe down the road we can have you back sometime, we'll talk about another couple of albums. That would be great.
0: I would be happy to yeah, do that.
1: Good luck to uh to you and all your future endeavors. Is there anything that you're working on you wanna plug or is it all kinda
0: Um, not not nothing to talk about at the moment. Gotcha, um, nothing to talk about at the moment. But yeah, maybe, maybe <sighs> by the time him. I'm almost <laughs> maybe by the time I'm I'm next on this podcast. I don't
1: I don't give video game journalists anymore, so you don't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, no, this was super fun. Uh, And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, we'd like to keep doing more. So please go to MinMax M I N M N N M A X on Patreon, um, and just you know, kick in. You can be part of the the you know community on on uh, Discord and and submit questions. So once again, thanks to y'all for listening. And uh, Chris, thank you for your time and and good luck with all your future endeavors.
0: Back, guys. You too. Take care. Take care.